Good morning. This summer, I went to Israel. It's true, and we're going to talk about it downstairs after second service. But as many of you greeted me coming in after we got back, my cliche answer to how was your trip was amazing. That's it. How can you summarize such a huge experience and condense it down into just a 30-second report? But um, many of you would ask, you know, well, give me one thing. What was your favorite thing? And I would just randomly scroll through my mind of the different sites we saw and pick one and tell my favorite because there's so many favorites about that trip. And I first want to, before we get into today, talking about we're going to talk about, I want to just follow up that on June 17th, I got to speak before I went to Israel. And some of you have been wondering about my expectations I had going to Israel. And I just want to clear up a few things that, um, yes, we arrived at the airport, and no, there were no camels or donkeys to take us to our hotel. We had to ride on a bus the whole way. But I did ride a camel later in the trip. And um, maybe the bigger pondering um, is, you know, what about demon-possessed people? Did you see a lot of those in Israel? And no, I did not. So just getting those things cleared up about Israel, um, those expectations. But isn't it interesting, as I talked about that back on June, June 17th, this story that has lived in my mind um, for all my years, but it's a 2,000-year-old story. And I've been to Israel so many times in my mind, but then it's different than the actual place. And so one of the things that I asked God to do on my trip was to open my eyes to see what he wanted me to see. To see, you know, beyond just the surface level of the details and the history and the facts, and to look deeper to what God wanted me to see in Israel. Um, and again, it's very cliche, and I've said this many times to all of you, that the story came alive in Israel. And isn't that what happens? It comes alive. Because there's this story in my head that I've just thought about so much, but it's just facts in this created story. But then when you go there, you see the place. You see the actual footsteps where Jesus walked. And something becomes part of my experience, moves into my emotions of that time and that place. So, the story came alive for me. And as we visited the various sites, the story um, moved into my emotions through my experience of being there. So, one of the many places that opened up emotionally for me was the Mount of Olives. And so this morning, I simply want to introduce you to the Mount of Olives, and I want to tell you three highlights about the Mount of Olives. So, an olive press, hematidosis, drosis, and a midnight vigil. So that's where we're going this morning. So let's start talking about the Mount of Olives. You know, the Mount of Olives was this place that Jesus often went to. It was one of his favorite places, perhaps. And Luke wrote this. He said, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. And that right there makes this place amazing because this is a place that Jesus wanted to hang out. He just wanted to be there, spend time there. And that is very attractive to me. But also, this specific place they went called Gethsemane. And we're going to talk about that more in a moment. But um, 
Gethsemane this was an olive garden. The Mount of Olives was just a whole bunch of olive trees. And this specific place Jesus and his disciples went was a garden with, you know, a fence or a wall around it and a gate, probably owned by some private person. And again, it's so fascinating because could you imagine the person who owns that and they're saying to Jesus, oh, yeah, Jesus, get, just make yourself at home. Whenever you're in town, whenever you come to Jerusalem, you know, just hang out in our garden. Just be there. You don't need to let us know you're coming or going. You know, just, just come and go. Make yourself at home. Wouldn't that be awesome to be those people opening up your little olive garden to Jesus? Well, it's things like that that opened my imagination through my experience of being there. So, the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount is a mount. It's not a mountain as we in Colorado know. So it's like a hill, right? And a hill covered with olive trees. And then there's a valley down below, and that's the Kidron Valley. And then there's another mount up the other side. And that's where the Temple Mount is. So we have a picture that I got from the internet, because when you're in Israel, you don't know what picture you need to take to talk about later. So I just went down the internet and got this picture. And there you see the Dome of the Rock. That's where Solomon's temple was built long ago, and then King Herod rebuilt it in that location, and then 70 AD it was destroyed, and every rock was pushed down. That is the Temple Mount that the people of Israel worshipped God at. So you see the Dome Rock. On the other side, you see the green. That is Mount of Olives. That's all the olives trees, okay? So we can take a perspective and just turn ourselves all the way around this way. Go to the next photo. Now we're looking from the Mount of Olives across the valley back at the Dome of the Rock. And you can see the wall. That's the Temple Mount wall. To give you a little perspective, I know that I am now that guy who's just going through some photos of a faraway place. And I, I, I know it's hard to connect, but in, this is the power of being there, is that I got to see this, now I understand how close the temple is to where the Mount of Olives is and where this place Gethsemane is located and how close it is and being there understanding why Jesus was so excited and wanted to hang out in this olive garden. Okay. Well, I already said that this is one of Jesus' favorite places. Let's now put this in context of the Holy Week story. Why is this Gethsemane place so important? You remember Jesus came into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And it was, you know, the time when everybody came to Jerusalem. So the town is just filled with people. And Jesus comes in, and if you remember on Palm Sunday, he comes riding in on a donkey. And people are celebrating his arrival. They're putting palm branches on the ground. They're laying their coats and jackets and clothes on the ground for the donkey to walk on. And people are celebrating Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And then the next few days, Jesus is hanging around the temple doing things like clearing out the temple, sending all the people selling things away. And Jesus said things like, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Kind of inciting some incident in that, perhaps. You know, and then the Jewish leaders, they're just looking for things to kind of trick Jesus in and catch him so that they can take this offense of Jesus and take it to the Roman officials and say, this guy's bad, you need to do something with him. And so one time they said, hey, Jesus, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus, seeing through their duplicity, um, responded, show me a denarius. 
You know, show me a coin. You know, whose face is on it? Whose inscription? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus gave that great wise answer. Well, then give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. So these are the things happening in Holy Week. And then we come to Thursday night. Thursday night is the night of celebration for the Passover. So Jesus and his 12, they're gathered in the upper room, and this is where we now celebrate communion from, is that meal they're gathered around. And Jesus took in the Passover meal a piece of bread, and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat in memory of me. And then later in that supper, he took one of the cups of wine from the Passover meal ceremony, took one cup, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. My blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in memory of me. And then Luke records going on from there, but the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Ooh, the stir and the conflict amongst the disciples as they start arguing among themselves. And from that moment, then, Jesus takes the 12, or the 11 at that moment, out to the Mount of Olives, takes them to Gethsemane. And so here we pick up the story. Here's what happens at Gethsemane. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, which in an olive garden, you could still probably see Jesus because it's open. And he knelt down and prayed. Here's how Jesus prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And we rose from prayer and went back to the disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So that's just a couple of hours that happens at Gethsemane. And so my first highlight from the Mount of Olives is simply this name, Gethsemane. And I'm going to continue to be that guy and go low-tech and show you a video that I took with my phone of our guide talking to us about this name, Gethsemane. Our guide was named was Shimon, and I just noticed that as he was talking, saying things, immediately after he was done talking, I could not remember what he said. So I just started taking videos, and then I also knew that if I take a picture, I will not know what these rocks are versus what those rocks are. So I started taking videos of Shimon talking. But here in this um, video, hopefully you can get a sense of what it's like to be on the tour but also just get a sense of what this Gethsemane means. So, if we can, let's take a look. Look to, the, look to the, my notebook here. You see, this is gut. Gut is a wine press. Gut is a wine press. Semene oil, olive oil, you see? So gut, semene, wine press and oil press, or olive press. Uh, grapes. All over the area, they found uh, these uh, holes which you're stepping on the uh, on the wine. Uh, uh, olives we see all over, full with olive trees. 
the, the story here goes to the time that Yeshua came after the last supper. He walked down, he found the rock, he sat on the rock, begged his disciples do not fall asleep once, twice. Guys, whenever in, uh, in the culture of Christianity you want to come to, to describe the deepest agony, sorrow, being upset that someone can be, this is the place, this is the picture. Yeshua is sitting on the rock and his sweat mixed with blood. Okay, so that, that's the place here. Now I want something to share with you. Hopefully you can understand all of that. But get of Gethsemane is the wine press, and then semine, the oil press. Isn't this amazing? So this word is just simply says oil and press, wine press. And what really came alive to me in this very familiar story is that here's Jesus at Gethsemane, which I just thought was a name, but now I understand he was at an oil press. So Jesus is at an oil press, and he is being pressed. He's at an oil press, and he is being pressed. You know, so much of Jesus' story that we think about and we talk about is, you know, Jesus is in charge. You know, Jesus is calming the storm. Jesus is healing the people. Jesus is casting out the demons. You know, Jesus, when the Jewish leaders are trying to trick him, he always has the right answer. You know, when they're trying to catch him, he can just walk through the crowd and they can't lay a hand on him. You know, this idea that we always talk about Jesus is in charge, he's in control. But here in this moment in the garden, it's different. It's this turning upside down that no, it's not, Jesus isn't in control. He's the one who's suffering. He's the one who needs encouragement. He's the one who needs his friends to support him. You know, often when I think about Jesus, it's this hard, super hard concept for my brain to take in and understand that Jesus was fully God and fully man. It's hard to conceptualize that and put that together and grasp that fully. And usually I lean over to Jesus is God side of my understanding. But here in Gethsemane, in this moment, it's a moment where Jesus is a human. Just like me, with the ability to hurt, to have emotional pain, to suffer. In this moment, Jesus is fully human in Gethsemane. So, I don't want to take this too far, but I am super drawn to this idea that Jesus is at a oil press and he is being pressed. You know, Gethsemane is this place of squeezing the olives and grapes. And it may have simply been a favorite place for Jesus to gather with his friends because it was beautiful. But it could have also been a living parable. If you look at how Mark and Matthew record the Gethsemane story, they say that Jesus, you know, came with his disciples, left some of them at the gate, took three inside, and then went off alone to pray. And he did this kind of off to pray and then goes back to his friends three times, back and forth. And Jesus going off to pray three times is very similar to the olive press process. You know, the olive press process is that the olives are pressed three times. The first time they're put in a big whatever container and a huge millstone is put on top and it just presses them down and squeezes out the oil. And of course that produces the most oil, the best oil. That's the extra virgin olive oil. 
But then they take that pulp and they press them again. So they add more weight and rocks on top to press out even more. And then they press it a third time. More weight, more rocks, maybe even using a wooden screw to like really screw that down and squeeze the oil out the third time. And it said that the pressing that third time produces a dark, red, thick oil. So interesting. So perhaps like the olives being pressed three times, Jesus here is being pressed three times. If something significant happened here in the garden, something incredibly significant, perhaps if I can even suggest the next day Friday would not even happen if this didn't happen here in Gethsemane. Because, of course, Jesus was sent from heaven to come to earth, to die for the sins of the world, to pay that debt. But, as Jesus calls it, the cup, in his life, it was always far off. You know, this cup was off in the future. It's in the future. It's coming. I know it's coming, but it's not here now. But here in Gethsemane, the cup is right in front of him. Jesus is looking into the cup, staring into it, seeing all that it means for him. It's categorically different than knowing something's coming than being faced with it right in that moment. And this is what makes the next day possible. Jesus being in prayer, bringing it to his Father. Well, can we just pause a second for ourselves and think about this cup? Because we don't have to drink the cup that Jesus drank. He drank it for us so that we don't have to. And that is amazing, and we're thankful for that. But as we follow Jesus, we still have our own cup that we have in following him that we have to drink. You know, in this life, we're going to face trouble and difficulty, pain and hurt, fear and anguish, and we get to choose. If we can drink that cup and follow Jesus, or are we going to take the easy route out? I think it's fascinating in Gethsemane that Jesus perhaps had the opportunity to say, no, no thank you, I'm going to not do that. And sometimes in our lives, in our decisions, we get to make easy out choices. You know, we can take a shortcut that might mean lying or cheating or stealing just to get through, get past, make it out. Sometimes that can just mean quitting and giving up and being like, I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm just going to remove myself from this press altogether. I quit. I'm going to make that choice to end the pressing. I'm not going to do that. And that can happen in so many ways, right? I mean, it's like our work. Your work creates pressure on you. What are you going to do? Your relationships course are creating pressure on you. What are you going to do? Health creates pressure on us. What are you going to do? You know, as I've been thinking about this pressing, I've been thinking about being a parent and just the pressing that a parent role has in my life, that I have this responsibility to raise these two little people to be responsible adults that are productive in society. And I feel like this pressure and at the same time, I feel a different pressure to be an adult living responsibly in society and doing something with my life. So these competing pressures at the same time. And so it's not often that we get this one big cup to drink 
like Jesus did. I like to think of it instead that we get a million little thimbles to drink every day in many ways. You know, like being with my kids, it's the moment to get off the couch and do something for them rather than just take a moment. Which is interesting. I remember in my 20s and 30s, you know, I believed truly that I had unlimited time. Like, time was limitless. You know, but now, three jobs, two kids, one wife, who's going to be back from sabbatical. And there's never enough time. And these competing pressures and demands, and time is in short supply. And so when time is in short supply, it's this easy desire to try to take the easy route out, to skip out, to quit, to cheat. And the highlight number one for me is here at Gethsemane, Jesus is at the oil press, and he is being pressed. But what does he do at the press? He brings himself to God three times and brings himself there until he's processed and worked through what he needs to in his fear and received what he needs to receive from God to face what he needs to face the next day. This leads to the second highlight, which is hematidrosis. If you look at that scripture passage again and look at the order of the events, Jesus went off by himself to pray, and he prayed, Father, if it is you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed even more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. What an interesting order of events. Jesus prays and asks this to be taken away. An angel is sent to strengthen him. But what's next? In anguish, Jesus goes back and prays even more. I think this is a fascinating process that Jesus is in. That, you know, the angel doesn't come in and swoop in and be like, oh yeah, Jesus, no problem, I'll take that away from you. You don't have to suffer with that anymore. But no, the angel comes and strengthens him, and he has the anguish at the same time. It continues, and he's working through this process of his own fear, his own anxiety, his own whatever he's thinking in that moment. Working through that and receiving strength from God. Receiving strength from God to willfully go to the cross, which is amazing. Jesus is choosing as an innocent person to go to the cross. And I wonder if in that garden, Jesus was just thinking, oh man, I'm worried about tomorrow because, hey, angel, I'm talking to you right now, but tomorrow I'll be there, and I'm afraid when my mockers say, hey, call down your 10,000 angels, save you. Jesus might have been afraid that he was going to say, all right, here it is, boom, and show them the reality that they were not able to see otherwise. So staring into the cup, Jesus starts to sweat blood. There's actually a medical term for this. Maybe you've heard it this morning. Hematidrosis. But hematidrosis is a condition, thank you, Internet, in which capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood, occurring under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. 
Severe mental anxiety activates the sympathetic nervous system to invoke the stress fight or flight reaction to such a degree as to cause hemorrhage of the vessels supplying the sweat glands into the ducts of the sweat glands. It has been suggested that acute fear and extreme stress can cause hematidrosis. So it's documented that people facing execution have had this where they sweat blood. Soldiers going into battle and facing that fear of what battle means have sweated blood. And so we don't know what Jesus is facing and what he's processing exactly, but he's going to face some excruciating pain. Pain that the Roman Empire puts in front of everybody through crucifixion so that you know this is what's going to happen to you if you mess up or go against us. So he's processing physical pain, but he's also processing emotional pain, what it means to die, to be separated from his friends and his family. And at this other deep level we can't even understand, Jesus is processing what it means for the Father to turn away. When this shame and sin is put on him and the Father has to look away, what is that going to be like? What's going to happen? The unknown of that, the separation, the aloneness. So Jesus' example to us in suffering in the garden is that he brought his cup to the Father. And he asked as many times as he needed to ask, take this away from me. Please take this away from me. Until he had asked enough that he didn't need to ask anymore and he was ready to go back and face with the strength that he was now given the day that would await him on Friday. So my third highlight is that midnight vigil. And I don't know about you, but in this passage, I have mostly focused on what Jesus was disappointed with. Thinking that Jesus was disappointed with the disciples for falling asleep. And at some level, I think that's like the easiest surface level reading. Like, oh, Jesus is disappointed with them for falling asleep. He's upset. And it's an easy call to action. Don't fall asleep. Keep watch. Which are all good things. But being in Israel, being in that spot, a different idea filled my thoughts. Jesus was not mad at them. Jesus was simply happy that they were there. Now, was he disappointed that they fell asleep while he's being crushed? Sure, that's okay. But he wasn't mad at them or upset with them. And I think Matthew and Mark's telling of the story is where you see this most. Where Jesus goes off to pray, and then he goes back to his friends. He goes over and prays. And he goes back to his friends. He just kept going back to his friends to check in with them. I don't know why. He just wanted to be with them. Whether they were sleeping or awake, it didn't matter. He just wanted to know that they were there. So what has impressed me at this passage is that Jesus wanted to be with his friends. He wanted them nearby. And this is one of the super special Jesus turning the world upside down things. You know, Jesus is doing all these reversals in the world. She's just turning the world upside down. But this is a special one. Because all the time, everyone is, you know, looking to Jesus to do something for them. Hey, Jesus, heal this guy. Hey, Jesus, raise this guy from the dead. Hey, Jesus, calm the storm. Hey, Jesus, would you do this? Hey, Jesus, would you do that? But here in the garden, 
It was reversed. Jesus needed his friends. Jesus needed his friends nearby. And doesn't that just turn our world upside down in how we approach Jesus? That instead of constantly looking for Jesus, Jesus, could you help me with this? Hey, Jesus, I got this problem. Hey, Jesus, can you fix that? Hey, Jesus. Here in this moment, Jesus is inviting us in to serve him by just being there. I know it doesn't sound very profound, but it's almost like Jesus just wants to know that we're there, know that we're looking and paying attention. So on the Mount of Olives, there was the olive press, there's sweating blood in a midnight vigil. I don't know for you what your pressing is like these days. I don't know what that is or how you're experiencing it. But I know that Jesus was pressed. And he is standing with you in however you're being pressed. I don't know how you are sweating blood these days. And what is causing that in your life. But again, I want you to know that Jesus cares that he cares about what you're going through because he went through such a difficult thing. You know, and just as Jesus kept going back to the Father time and again to pray and ask, can you take this away? Can you take this away? That example is true for us as well, that we can just bring whatever our cup is and bring it to God and talk to him about it. And hopefully through the processing of the fear, the anxiety, the whatever, We're also receiving God's strength to face whatever we need to face that God is calling us into. So don't give up. In a midnight vigil, in our lives, we always have Jesus who's with us. We also have each other. And it's not just a don't fall asleep, keep watch. It is we want to be together. We want to be with Jesus. We want to be with each other. We want to face whatever this life has and face it well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son to this earth to live, to live in a specific place on this earth. Jesus, thank you that I got to go and see some of those places. Jesus, thank you that you went to the Garden of Gethsemane and you were there with your friends, and you were processing such a weight that was on you. And God, I pray, I pray that you would help us watch with you and also to be encouraged in our own press, whatever you are putting on 